so great to, uh, to see all of you this morning. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as I, as I still my own heart and uh, as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Jesus, we, uh, we ask that through the Spirit that you would work in our hearts. Uh, we recognize that uh, long before this moment, uh, that um, if we are in Christ, that the Spirit is within us, sanctifying us, using um, all of our lives to conform us into the image of God's Son. And, and we just pray that you would continue to do that work. I pray that we would come to the Scriptures this morning with open minds and humble hearts. We believe that this is truth, that, um, that this is life, that even when we don't like the things that it says, that, um, that we do well to humble ourselves underneath it. And we, we ask that um, as you're doing that work in, in our heart and in our lives, that we would be, as Jesus called us to be, salt and light. Would you help us today to learn <clears throat> how we might better declare the beauty of the gospel to the world? We recognize that all around this place this morning, there are men and women who have not yet believed the good news, and it is our call to go and to preach to them. And so, Father, would you fill us up from your word, by your spirit, and then send us out today. Help us by your grace towards this end. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, as I said before, it's really good to, uh, to see all of you this morning. Um, I always do this, and I, I want to keep doing it. I want to just uh, extend a special welcome. If you're a guest with us this morning, if it's your first or maybe your first couple of times, we're really glad that you're here. And so I just want to encourage you to, uh, to hang around. Thanks for putting a name tag on, by the way. I'm kind of iffy on name tags. I always feel a little awkward when I have to wear a name tag, but uh, we have some great staff around here that make me do it. So, but I got out of it this morning because I don't have a name tag on. Uh, so thank you for doing that, and uh, like I said, if you're a guest this morning, we're, we're so glad that you're here. Hang around after the service. We'd love the chance to, uh, to get to, to meet you and uh, to get to introduce ourselves to you, so, so please do that. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. Uh, we are in the middle of a, uh, a sermon series that we've called uh, Plotting a Course. It's a, it's a little bit of a different sermon series for us here at the, the church at Blue Ridge where we've, we're, kind of, uh, we're kind of preaching a little bit more uh, of a topical sermon series, albeit uh, very much tied to the text. And, and even this morning, we're gonna, you're going to get more of a kind of a verse-by-verse exposition. But, but the goal of this sermon series is really to, to kind of put forth what makes us distinct as a church, the things that we as the church at Blue Ridge believe are, are of utmost importance that, that make us a Bible-believing uh, New Testament church. And we've, we've talked about a host of things uh, throughout kind of the, the sermon series. We've talked about whole-body discipleship. Uh, we've talked about biblical preaching, uh, expositional verse-by-verse preaching. We're going to talk about things in the future, about church membership, giving, uh, we we want to we put out there the things that, that we believe make us distinct. And so this morning, uh, kind of the, uh, the topic that, that we want to zero in on, and then obviously we're going we're gonna to look at the text, but the, the topic that we're running after this morning is this idea of maintaining a vibrant witness, all right? 
If you are in Christ this morning, God saved you by his grace through faith. But he didn't save you to yourself. He saved you to send you back into the world to declare the good news to others so that they might be rescued. And so that, that's, what I wanna, that's what I wanna talk about this morning. Uh, the, the church for, uh, for thousands of years has, has struggled, has wrestled with how to answer the question of how it is to relate to the world around it, right? Um, how are we to, to maintain a vibrant witness in a culture that is exceedingly wicked. Like it seems to get more wicked every day, right? And if, if you've been around the church for any length of time or you, you know church people, right? You may, have, you may have heard someone attempt to answer that question. Like how is the church to relate to the world? How are we to maintain this vibrant witness? You may have heard someone answer that question this way. Well, doesn't Jesus say that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Anybody ever heard that before? Have you heard that saying before? All right, a couple of you. Great, yeah. So doesn't Jesus say we're supposed to be in the world as his followers, but not of the world? All right. Now, uh, to be fair to that little saying, that phrase, all right, it, it is true in the things that it says, right? Jesus does call us to be in the world, but not of the world. But there's a couple problems with it. And, and, and the first one is actually pretty big. Like Jesus doesn't actually say those words, believe it or not. Like he did, those words don't actually come out of Jesus' mouth in that way, right? Uh, he, he never actually says it just like that. I want to show you what Jesus actually says in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. They should be on the screen there in front of you. Uh, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Those are Jesus' actual words, right? Uh, they're a part of his high priestly prayer. If you've never heard that, that term before, um, at this point in Jesus' life, he's about to die. He's about to go to the cross, die, and ultimately be raised from the dead and ascend to the right hand of God. And so he's going to be leaving behind the disciples to continue on his mission, right, of building God's kingdom through the declaration of the gospel. But when we use Jesus' words in that way, doesn't Jesus say we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world? The, the tendency that, we've, that we run into, the tendency is that we underemphasize our sentness and overemphasize our um, distinctness. Jesus calls us to be both distinct and sent, right? And uh, according to uh, one author, his name's David Mathis, he's a really smart guy, he, he actually wants us to, to uh, change the way that that, that phrase goes, and to say instead, we're not to be of the world, but sent into the world. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus is not asking his father for his disciples to be taken out of the world, but he's praying for them as they are sent into the world, right? Jesus' followers have been raised to new life and sent back into the world 
to free others. As we think about the ways that that we are to relate to the wicked culture around us, to the world around us, to maintain this vibrant witness, it's, it's imperative that we remember that, yes, we are not to be of the world, but we are definitely sent into the world with a message of hope, with a message of rescue. This is, uh, this is who we are as Jesus' disciples. If you're in Christ this morning, this is who you are. You are, you are a part of the sent ones, right? We have been saved from the world, set apart from it, called holy, right? We've been called holy and then sent right back into the world to lead others to the same Jesus that rescued us. Friends, if we think this morning for one moment, that we can live as followers of Jesus however we want, do whatever we want, right? And still reach our neighbors with the gospel, we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. Our, Our words will be undermined by our lives every time. On on the other hand, thinking that you can totally isolate yourself off from the world, right? and uh, from the the wicked culture, thumb your nose at it, if you will, maybe even rebel against it, that's equally as foolish, right? No one will take you seriously, right? Jesus lived at neither of these extremes, right? 1 Peter 2.22 says, Jesus committed no sin or deceit. No sin or deceit. None of it was found in his mouth. In, in, but in Matthew, 9, cha- uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, where do we find Jesus? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's in the world, sent into the world, but he's not of the world. Now, in our text this morning, in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is going to help us get at an answer to this question, right? And let me, let me say from the outset, I'm not going to be able to answer this question fully about how we're supposed to maintain this vibrant witness. We could, uh, when we're finished this afternoon, you and I could get together and we could go through what-if scenarios from here until Jesus returns, right? But, but I at least want to begin to, to answer this question, right? Here from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Because here's the deal. Uh, Titus is calling the church at Crete to, to maintain a, a vibrant witness in a place like Crete, right? This is one of the most wicked places on the planet, Right? Now, in chapter 2, what we saw last week, Paul's concern was mainly with the, the, the Cretans believers, with their, uh, their relationship with one another, and how that affected the, uh, the world around it, okay? So, how you and I as believers in Christ relate, and how that affects uh, those who have not yet believed. That was, that was Paul's primary concern in Titus chapter 2. But now, in Titus 3, things are shifting, Paul is turning his attention to the church's relationship with the world, with your relationship with uh, your unbelieving friends and neighbors and coworkers. That's, that's Paul's attention here. As I said, Crete was one of the most violent, greedy, and sexually immoral places on the planet, right? Any, anybody live in a culture that we could consider greedy, violent, sexually immoral, right? right? That, that's us. That, that's just like us. Now, we need to remember that Paul sent Titus to Crete to, to restore um, some things to this network of churches that, that he plant there, planted there. They were plagued with poor leadership and they were tempted to, to give in to the, to the surrounding culture, to the, the sin that was around them. They struggled to live as both set apart and sent. So Paul writes to, to help, help them navigate this and he writes to help us 
navigate it as well. Between the two extremes of conforming to the world, giving in to the culture that is around us, or rebelling or even setting ourselves apart and isolating ourselves from the world. So, so what I've tried to do this morning is I've tried to summarize what I think Paul is saying in, in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, in one sentence, okay? And what I want to do is I'm going to read you that sentence, and then we're going to break that sentence apart and w- use it to walk through our text. And hopefully the Lord is going to teach us something about how we are to maintain uh, a vibrant witness. So let me, let me read that to you. Here, here's what I think Paul is saying in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. We must live humbly before all people as former sinners saved by God's grace and sent to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. Let me me read that to you again. We must live humbly before all people as former sinners saved by God's grace and sent to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. All right? So let's let's break that apart and walk through the text this morning. Uh, First, we must live humbly before all people. Read with me Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Right? So that's Titus 3, verses 1 through 2. And I've kind of summarized that as live humbly. Now, the, the command, the imperative, this is the, the command that really uh, undergirds our entire text this morning, is, is to remind them, remind the Cretans uh, to be submissive and, and obedient. Remember, Paul planted these churches he planted this network of churches, and it, it seems that, um, that they have forgotten some of the things that he taught them, right? Paul's one of the, the greatest missionaries to ever live. We're safe to assume that he instructed the Cretan believers in these things, right? But, but here's the deal. Paul probably had to leave these churches. He had to leave these churches before they, before they were quite ready to carry on on their own. That's part of the reason why he's sending Titus back to put things in order. So he had to leave them early. And so he's having to, to remind them of some things, right? So in many ways, the believers at Crete are kind of like first-time parents, right? At some point over that nine-month period, right, while the baby is growing in mommy's belly, like... You probably hear everything and anything you need to know to keep that baby alive, right? To maintain that baby's existence on this planet. You learn all that stuff. But day one, when the doctors are gone, right? The nurses are gone. Grandma's gone home, right? And that baby starts making a funny noise or she turns a funny color. Like, oh my goodness, like what are we gonna do, right? When when you're faced in the moment with having to take care of this little life, things get real, real quick. That's where the Cretans are this morning, right? Paul's gone, and he, they are forced to live out their faith in a wicked culture that surrounds them, and they've forgotten some of the things that Paul's taught them, and so they need to be reminded, and so do we. And what do they need to be reminded of? Well, Paul tells them that they are to be submissive in regards to rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities. Now, now specifically here, Paul has in view um, secular governments, and civil leaders, right? 
In our context, he's talking about state governments, federal governments, the president of the United States, right? Paul is calling the Cretans and us, the Cretans and us to be submissive and obedient. And we can look in places like Romans 13. Romans 13 verse one, we learn, Paul teaches us that governments are put in place by God. God put them in place and he gave them their power and their authority. And so it could be here that, that Paul is worried that the Cretans are going to rebel against Rome, right? The Cretans are known by their own poets, Epimenides, right? Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, right? Paul may be concerned that these people are going to see their allegiance to Jesus as an excuse to rebel against Rome, right? And he may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, geez, Robert, like, I'm not going to stage a coup, against the government. Like, that's not, like, that's not who I am. Like, how does this apply to me, right? I'm not raising up a, a militia, you know, on my weekends. Like, how does this apply to me? But are we not all tempted in some ways? Are we not all tempted to believe the lie that it's really not that big of a deal that we disobey the government or break some laws or rules because, hey, the leaders that are over us that put those laws in place, they're not saved anyway. They don't love Jesus. So it'll be all right. I can do whatever I want. Aren't we all tempted to, to live and think that way sometimes? I think we are. I think we are, right? If, if that leader, if that president, if that politician would just get saved, he would see things my way. He would see things my way. So in our pride, we... We very softly, not in big ways, right? We're good people. We very softly rebel, right? And Paul says, no way. No, followers of Jesus are to be both submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities as a part of maintaining our witness in the culture, right? And, and we can even look to other places in the New Testament to broaden out who leaders and authorities are, right? We can look in places like Ephesians 6.12, 1 Timothy 2.2 2, or 1 Peter 2 and see that this command, it doesn't just apply to uh, civil governments or, or nation states. It applies to any leader, any source of authority that's over us. We are called to be submissive and obedient, right? Now, obedience, we, we understand, right? Not breaking the law. My, my son understands obedience. Daddy tells him to do something or not to do something, and, and he obeys. We, we get that, right? And, and this would mean breaking the law, whether that's, you know, uh, federal terrorism law or uh, the speed limit. Um, th- this would apply to your teacher's classroom rules if you're in school, your professor's rules if you're in college. This, this would apply to your, uh, to your parents' house rules if you're a child this morning. Obeying your parents matters to the Lord, Right? You, you, can, you can obey. We know what obedience means. But what about submissiveness? Submissiveness, submissiveness, if I can say it, that's a little bit different to me. It's a little more tricky because submissiveness is not necessarily about physical action, tangible things that I can do. It's about the attitude of the heart, the posture that we take, right? You can obey begrudgingly, can't you? Don't say no because my four-year-old did it this morning, right? Dad, I don't want to brush my teeth, right? And then he obeys. He stomps off down the hall to go brush his teeth, but his heart's not in the right place. Paul is calling for both here, both obedience, tangible, physical action, and a posture and a heart that is submissive, right? That is to be our attitude towards authorities and leaders, really towards anyone as we seek to live humbly, right? 
But Paul goes on. He doesn't even just leave us there. He keeps running the knife deeper, right? Because he says we're to be ready for every good work. We're not just to be believers who passively obey laws, right? But we're to be actively seeking out ways that we can benefit and better our world and the people around us, just as God commanded his people in Jeremiah 29, 7, right? But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find welfare. Now, it's important that, that, we, uh, that we talk about this idea of submitting to uh, leaders and authorities for just a minute here, because... Um, the question always comes up, okay, so what, what, about, what about governments or, or leaders that impose uh, immoral laws, that do things that are, that are contrary to God and the gospel? It's important for us to recognize here in Titus that that is not the context of Titus, all right? Most scholars believe that at this point in Rome, Rome had not yet um, instituted emperor worship, where they said everyone has to worship the emperor as a god. Therefore, making Christianity, who says there's only one god and his name is Jesus, not Caesar, that would make Christianity illegal. They hadn't done that yet. So at this point in Titus, at this point in the history of the church, Christianity is at the very least a, a tolerated religion. But it's important for us who live in a different context where it's very possible that the government could indeed turn against the gospel in Christianity. And it would happen for the early church. Just a little bit after Titus' writing, Rome would institute emperor worship. So it's important for us to, to talk about that. But here's the deal. Even in the face of an immoral government, of unjust laws, here's, here's, the, here's the kicker. We're still called to obey and submit. We're still called to obey and submit just in a different way. God's authority, as I've already said this morning, God's authority stands over and above the authority of human government. Remember I told you, Paul taught us in Romans 13, 1, that it was God who put those authorities in place. So naturally, he stands above them. He has authority over them. So if faced with the decision to obey God or to obey man and his laws, say they be unjust, we always obey God but then we must be ready to submit humbly to the consequences, to the consequences of us being obedient to God and disobeying man's laws. Let me, let me show you from the, the Bible how this works. Um, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are drugged before the religious leaders, right? And what do the religious leaders tell Peter and the apostles? I remember? Stop preaching Jesus. Stop preaching the gospel. Anybody remember what, what Peter and the apostles say to, say to their leaders? Listen, guys, we have to obey God. We have to obey God. And it's at this point, as a 30-year-old uh, reader of the Bible, that I want to raise my hand like, yeah, go Peter and apostles, revolt, right? But that's not what they do. They say to the religious leaders who were authority over them, they say, listen guys, we're going to obey God, but then they humbly submitted to the consequences and they took a beating. They took a beating for it. And they didn't go out in the streets and start rioting or picketing. They took a beating and then they got right back to their main mission, which was sharing the gospel, preaching Jesus. They take it on the chin and they get right back to the mission. 
Friends, we are to be submissive and obedient to our government and any other authority God places over us unless those laws or rules stand in opposition to God. And even then, we're called to humbly submit to the consequences, whatever they are, even, even, and I, and I stress this with as much humility as a 30-year-old can muster, having never been in this situation, even if our situation is like the saints in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, they submitted unto death. They submitted unto death. So we are to live humbly, specifically towards uh, authorities and leaders, um, but really towards all people. And that's kind of the next kind of breakdown that I want to talk about. Before all people, living humbly, it includes more than just our leaders and authorities. We must live before all people. We, you look at the end of verse two, we are to show perfect courtesy, perfect courtesy. That's actually where I get perfect, that's where I get humility from. You can actually translate perfect courtesy as perfect humility. From the most powerful man in Washington, the president of the United States, to the homeless man on the street corner, followers of Jesus are to never, look at what Paul says, they're to never speak evil of anyone. Even if he represents, if she represents everything you stand against, politically or religiously, even if that guy just cut you off in traffic when you're late for work, even if that lady just left her shopping cart in the last available parking space at Ingalls, right? We're not to speak evil of anyone. We're to avoid quarreling, Paul says. Avoid quarreling. This is in contrast with the false teachers who Paul says in Titus 3, 9, they loved a good argument. They loved a good argument. Paul says we're to avoid quarreling. Anybody here like a good uh, political argument, theological argument? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Paul is calling you out this morning, right? That we are to be careful and avoid these things. Avoid arguments. Avoid quarreling. Instead, Paul says we are to be gentle or kind to everyone. Here's the point. Paul is saying that as followers of Jesus, we are to be model citizens in every respect. In every respect. We're not to be rebels or dissidents, right? We're to be, or to be constantly bucking the system, bucking the authority systems that God, have, God has placed over us and the relationships that we have in our society. We live humbly before our government, our neighbors, our bosses, our coworkers, our teachers, and our families. That's what God's called us to do. But then look with me at verse three. Because not only are we called to live humbly, but we're also called to do that as former sinners. And this is huge. This is huge, right? In verse three, we begin to see Paul's reasoning for all of this. The reason why he's calling us to this kind of life. And it's rooted in God's mission. It's rooted in evangelism. Look at verse three. For we ourselves, that's you and me, that's the Cretan believers. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul's reasoning in verse three for living this way, humbly, submissively, obediently, is evangelistic. The, the Cretans and you and I must live humble lives before all people because guess what? We were once just like the rest of the world. We were once sinners. We were foolish. 
We lacked understanding regarding the truth of our sin and the hope of the gospel, right? If you're in Christ this morning, there was a time in your life when you weren't in Christ, right? That's true for all of us. Our lives were once filled with disobedience toward God, and we were led astray into sin's deceptions, and we were enslaved to the passions and pleasures of our flesh. That was me. That was you, right? Our lives were once filled with evil, jealousy, and hatred. And here's the implication. Here's the implication that Paul wants us to see. If God's mercy can make a former sinner like me, not a former sinner, not a sinner, it can do the same for anyone else. God's grace is good for anyone who will repent of their sins and trust in Him, right? Whether that's your your neighbor, your boss, the politician you don't like, the preacher you don't like, God can save them. But there's a danger that we face in this, okay? There's a danger that we face when it comes to remembering our sin and maintaining a, a vibrant witness, okay? Like the Cretans, right? Remember, Paul sent Titus to remind them. Like the Cretans, we often forget who we used to be, former sinners, right? And, and instead of living humbly before other people, our lives are characterized by pride and self-righteousness. Pride and self-righteousness. And here are two ways that, there are more, but here are two ways that this, this kind of fleshes itself out, right? First, it's, it's pride or a, a cheapening of God's grace that would say, uh, like, like the false teachers in chapter three, mind you, just like them, Jesus has saved me, Right? I am saved by Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus has saved me, and I have grace, so I can live however I want. That is the epitome of pride and self-righteousness. That's what it is to be an evil beast, lazy glutton, and a liar, right? To say, hey, I'm an evil beast, I'm a lazy glutton, and I'm a liar. Don't judge me because I've got grace. I can live however I want because of what Jesus has done, right? Isn't it the the height of pride to live that way, discounting the high price that that Jesus paid to free you from the slavery to your sin? Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.1. Here in this passage, Paul is astounded at the Corinthians. Listen to what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, the Corinthian believers, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. That is a horrible thing to say. That there is sin in the body at Corinth that's worse than the pagans, right? He goes on in verse six. Your boasting, Corinthians, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Friends, sin is dangerous. It is dangerous for us as followers of Jesus but it's also dangerous for the witness of the church, the gospel witness of the church. If we as followers of Jesus refuse to submit to Jesus and try to live however we want, committing whatever sin we want, we rob the gospel message of its true power to change people. But there's a second danger here as well. Because isn't it also self-righteousness and pride that causes believers, you and I, to expect unbelievers, those who have not yet believed the gospel, to live as if they have? 
To live as if they have received the grace and mercy that you have? Is that not the height of pride and self-righteousness? And then when they don't, when they don't live the way, believers don't, unbelievers don't live the way that we expect, what do we do? We, we raise our fists and we shake our fists in anger. Like, well, just forget them. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go live off in my little compound up in the hills somewhere and, and isolate myself off because the world's not going the way that I think it should, right? Or even better yet, I'm just gonna rebel against it. Forget this, I'm gonna rebel, right? Is it fair this morning for us as followers of Jesus to expect even our nation's leaders to pass laws, to govern in a way that is in keeping with the teachings of God's word when the vast majority of them are not even saved? Is that fair? I don't, I don't think it is. Could this, could this be the real reason you speak evil of and quarrel with that lost person at work or at school? Are, are you holding him or her to a standard of living that he or she is not equipped by the grace of the gospel to live by, right? Listen to Paul again. He helps us again in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. Verse 12, for what have I, Paul says, to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Friends, you and I, the church, those who have been saved by Jesus, we are called to be holy. As God's people, we are called to be holy. Not the wicked world outside of us, right? We are called to take the message of the gospel to them so that they can be called holy, right? So we should never be shocked. We should never be shocked or get angry when unbelievers live like unbelievers. Instead, we must remember who we were we must remember who we were and be ruthless with our own sin and be kind to our neighbors. So we are called to, to live humbly uh, before all people as former sinners. But then look with me at verses four through seven. As former sinners who have been saved by, the gospel, by God's grace. Right? Read along with me verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 4 of Titus chapter 3 contains one of the most important words in the entire Bible. One of the most important words in the entire Bible. But. <laughs> but. The Cretan believers and you and I, we were formerly sinners. We used to be sinners. But. But something happened to them. And something happened to you. And, and what is it? It's the, the appearing of the loving kindness of God our Savior. It's the appearing of the gospel in each of our lives, right? Paul actually may be reciting here in these verses an ancient creed that the early church would, would pass on from father to son and mother to daughter, a way of, of putting the gospel in a, in a really condensed capsule form. We, we see one of these in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and another one in 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 through 11. 
And in this instance here, Paul is not referring to the appearing of Jesus on the scene of history. He's not talking about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. He's talking about personal experience here for the Cretans and for you and I. When the grace of Jesus appeared to you, right? There was a moment, or for some of us here, there was a series of moments in our lives when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared to us. We were made aware of Jesus and the gospel. God did that through the Spirit for us, right? And when that happened, Paul says God saved us. He saved you, and saving you was his mission, and so Paul wants to unpack that so that not only we remember who we were, but we remember who we are now, And so Paul says, why did God save you? Paul says, it wasn't because of any works of righteousness that you did, any good deeds. Remember who he tells us who we were? Foolish, wicked, passion enslaved. No, you became aware of God's grace and mercy this morning. If you are aware of it, you became aware of it because God did that for you. God showed mercy on you and on the Cretans. That's why he saved us, because of mercy. What did he actually do when he saved us is the next thing that Paul wants us to see. He, he summarizes the what using three terms. Regeneration, renewal, and then down in verse 7 you see the word justified or justification. This morning, if you were in Christ, you were regenerated and renewed. These words refer to the inner work that God did God did within you, right? We, we see this promised by God upon his people in the Old Testament in places like Jeremiah 31, 33, for example, where God promises there to write his law on his people's hearts. Formerly, God's law was written on stone tablets. Now God says something new is coming. It's coming in the gospel through Jesus. God's gonna light his, write his law on our hearts, right? This is also what Paul refers to in Romans six eleven. We were made dead to sin, or to loving the, the passions, the sinful passions and pleasures of your, of your flesh. But then second, Paul says, you were justified. You were justified if you were in Christ this morning. Jesus' righteousness was credited to you, even though you didn't deserve it. You were guilty. You were guilty and a sinner, and Jesus' righteousness was credited to you. You were justified. And by what means did God accomplish all this? Who did he use? Paul says that your heart and mind were renewed by the washing of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit has washed you. He's washed you and renewed you inwardly in your heart and in your mind. But notice here that all three members of the Trinity are listed in the the means of your salvation. It was the Spirit who washed you, right? It was through the work of Jesus that the Spirit was poured out. And it was God the Father as part of His goodness and loving kindness that brought about Jesus appearing and that ultimately poured out the Spirit upon you, right? And then finally says, Paul says, to what end, to what goal did did God do this? What was God's goal in all of this? It was so that the Cretans and you and I, that we might be heirs of the hope of eternal life. This morning, if you are in Christ, your future is guaranteed. It's it's guaranteed. You have a hope of eternal life because of what God has done within you and is continuing to do within you. This is the hope of your inheritance this morning, that you will live forever. And if not, it certainly can be, 
right? It certainly can be your hope this morning. If you will repent and believe, repent of your sins and believe in the truth that Jesus died in your place on the cross and rose from the grave three days later, you can have this hope of eternal life as well. You can be saved. So we are, we are called as God's people to live humbly before all people as former sinners, saved by grace. But then look at verse 8 as we wrap things up. We are also called as those sent to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. Finally, Paul zeroes in here on what, on what he's been getting at these entire eight verses. Read with me verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all, for people, excuse me, for people. Paul says this morning, all that stuff that I just said to you, Titus, all that stuff I just wrote to you, it's trustworthy. Like you can bank on it, Titus, and you need to insist upon it. You need to insist upon it because the Cretans need to hear it. It's important. The church at Blue Ridge, we need to hear this this morning. We need to hear it. So stress these things. Emphasize these things. As, as followers of Jesus, the Cretans and you and I are called to devote ourselves, to, uh, to commit ourselves to living this way to doing these kind of good works laid out here. This is, this is part of what God saved us to, to be zealous, zealous for good works. That's Titus 2, 14. And the reason Paul says here in verse 8 is because lives devoted to this kind of humble living is excellent and it benefits people. It's excellent and it benefits people. So our question as we're reading through the text should naturally be, well, how? Why? How does it benefit people? Right? What's Paul talking about here? Well, back up in chapter 2, Paul laid out the consequences of living devoted to good works or not living that way. If, on the one hand, as God's people, we do not live devoted to the good work of humbly living before all people as former sinners saved by God's grace... Look at what Titus 2.5 says happens to the Word of God. It's reviled. It's reviled. It's discredited. It's given an evil reputation. Have you ever thought about that before? That the way that you conduct yourselves towards outsiders, towards people that have not yet believed the gospel, whoever they are, has an impact on how they receive God's Word? reviles it. Our sin matters. But look at Titus 2.10. On the other hand, as God's people commit themselves to good works, to living humbly before all people, what is the result? The doctrine of God is what? Adorned. It's adorned. It's, it's made beautiful. Living devoted to good works, living in the ways that we've laid out this morning, it makes the gospel beautiful, attractive for those who have not yet believed. Friends, the way we interact with our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, it has a direct impact on their response to the gospel, whether it's positive or negative. 
with our lives this morning, we either discredit the gospel message or we show its beauty. This morning, Paul has been laying out for us a strategy. His strategy, really. His strategy for missions, for evangelism, for how the church is to relate to the world and and maintain a vibrant witness. He's helping us walk that tightrope, right? Between conforming to the world, right? Being in the world, but not of the world, but then also being sent into the world. Friends, we are not called as followers of Jesus to rage against our culture or to completely cut ourselves off from it. That's not what God has called us to do. On the other hand, we certainly cannot embrace all of the things that our culture embraces, the sin that characterizes our culture. We can't embrace those things, right? If we rage against the, against the world and against the culture, if we, if we snub our nose at it from our, our well-insulated lives that, that protect us from sin maybe getting on us, right? Our message of good news will be ignored. But, but on the other hand, if we assimilate, if we assimilate and, and, and give in to the, the sinful temptations that are around us, we will soon look like those whom God has called us to preach the gospel to, whom God has sent us to rescue, right? We are called to neither of those extremes. Jesus didn't live that way. Paul certainly did not advocate that way. Instead, if we pursue humble lives within our culture, at the places where you work, at the schools where you attend, right? In your neighborhoods, Right? If we live within our culture, seeking to see our friends and neighbors transformed by us speaking the message of the truth and by that message being credited by the way that we live, our evangelism is given power. Our evangelism is given power. Our message is given credibility. Right? In this scenario, the way we live, when we live this way, it actually makes the gospel beautiful. It makes the gospel beautiful and it makes the world around us wonder, like what is going on with him? What is going on with her? We are not rebels, but neither are we weak need. We are called to be witnesses who live humbly before all people as former sinners sent to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have given us a tall, tall order to live holy, set-apart lives in the midst of a, a culture that is anything but holy and set-apart. Admittedly, there, there are many what-if questions, specific scenarios. How do I live this way at my job, in this situation, in that situation? Questions that, that we don't have time to, to go into detail and answer this morning. So, so I pray that as a result of, of your word being proclaimed this morning, that, that your people would be driven to their knees in prayer, that they would be driven uh, to their Bibles as they seek not to, be, uh, not to be rebels, not to completely pull themselves out of the world, but then also not to give in not to give in to the temptations of the sinful culture, but that you, through our prayer, through our time in the Word, that you would help us to live lives 
that, that are holy, that are set apart, that are humble before those around us who are unbelievers, that seek to see our friends and neighbors transformed by the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Help us as we seek, as the church at Blue Ridge, to live this way um, where we work, where we live, and where we play. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.